0: So much of my understanding of being Muslim, it comes from the Black Muslim experience. I think they and a lot of the Black Muslims are a bit more unapologetic about it, right? And they're also a bit more open and fluid with their experience of being Muslim because they've been in in the country for a longer time than we are. So they know know how to navigate society a lot better than I think first-generation immigrants. So so I've looked to them in a lot of ways to, to figure out how the hell to be Muslim in America.
1: Welcome to episode 57 of the Brown and Black Podcast. My name is Jack Rico. And I'm Mike Sargent. And every week we take a look at race and pop culture through a brown and black lens. Mike, I haven't spoken to you in a while, man. I know
2: it's been quite a summer. We both have been uh, pursuing side projects and now we're back ready to focus on brown and black
1: and i am so jacked up for this guest that we have today that literally brought us back from this summer hiatus essentially to speak to riz ahmed an oscar award winner Pakistani actor, mainstream Hollywood, A-list actor in my opinion, and Bassam Tariq, the director of the new Marvel Blade movie with Mahershala Ali, and it's incredible to have spoken to these two men for a project that they both came together for called Mogul Mowgli. To me, it's one of these great independent films that isn't necessarily meant to be an Oscar award winning film but it tells a very powerful story. And that's what I like about indie cinema. And maybe it's because Mike, I'm getting wiser and in, 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 in being more enlightened, these types of films speak and resonate more to me. Well,
2: you know, it's interesting that you say that because I was having this conversation. I got interviewed about uh, the impact of Melvin Van Peebles in his film, sweet, sweet backs, Badass song. And it was this French Uh, you know, television studio. And he impacted French culture. He impacted uh, American culture. He impacted... Wait, Mario Van Peebles? Melvin Van Peebles. You know, his first film was in French. What? He had to go to France to make films because black people weren't getting to make films. As a matter of fact... The part of his story, I don't know if you know, is he got back here into America, was re-entered or re-welcomed into America. He had been living in France for 10 years, taught himself the language, wrote three novels in French, okay, then made a movie. It's called Story of a Three-Day Pass, which was an adaptation of his French novel Entered it in uh, one of a major major film festival. I don't know the West Coast. I forget which one. It got in one prize. They flew him in. They could not believe that this was this black American who had made this French film.
1: It sounds a lot like what James Baldwin did when he left the United States to go to Paris. You know, a lot of African American artists went to Paris because they felt liberated there and not seen from that racial lens like America does.
2: There are so many ways in which we can either be absorbed into the culture or a culture, or you can just kind of carve your own way. I thought the film was very powerful, and I thought that it spoke to a lot of things that we talk about here on Brown and Black, just about culture, about identity, about... You mentioned it, the power of film is that you can be changed from film you can be changed your your views of the world of cultures are greatly influenced by what you've seen in film
1: i used to hear this when i was a lot younger the iconoclasts they were more like man that's bullshit man Whoop, i mean you're so influenced by cinema so you're telling me man that that if you watch christopher reeve in superman and he flies you're gonna fly along with him huh right and you're going dude not that type of crap like you idiot We're talking about something much more deeper that can change your perspective of the way you see the world. Not that you're going to do every little thing that a fantasy movie does. I mean, some people are just idiots, Mike.
2: First of all, if they sounded like what you just imitated and they said that to you, hopefully you don't know them anymore. But no, you're right. You know, it's interesting, too. There's a film critic out there. I forget his name, but he has a whole theory. And you can look this up, those who are listening. He calls it cinema therapy. And he has a whole philosophy about how film can change your life. But if nothing else, it really influences not just how we're seen, you know, being brown and black by the rest of the world, but how we see ourselves. Uh-huh. What are your thoughts on Hispanic Heritage Month? Meaning, what does it mean to you? Okay, especially considering nobody says Hispanic anymore. And then second of all, why does Hispanic Heritage Month start in the middle of the month? What what is that all about?
1: (laughs) You know, I've asked myself this so many questions. (laughs) And okay, let's tackle number one. Um, The Hispanic Heritage Month. What do I think about it? I used to think that this was a great thing for us because you always felt, you know, singled out in a good way, in a positive way, when Hispanic Heritage Month came out. Like you were ignored for 11 months out of the year to then be acknowledged for one month out of the year. And, you know, when you're growing up with a Gucci Frito complex, which is what my wife likes to call it, you know, it's just like that, that's, that inferior second-class citizen mindset that so many immigrants have in the United States— you know, you, you say to yourself, I'm just glad that someone sees me. But as I get wiser, then I start understanding. It's like, wait a minute, but why isn't every day Hispanic Heritage Month? What if we just eliminate all of these months that target individuals and groups celebrating them for those 30 days? And you know that dissipates after like the first week. Every corporation is like, "Hey, did we send out that Hispanic Heritage Month, uh, you know, memo? Yes, we did, sir. All right, just ignore the rest of uh, the month. Thanks. Let's move on. All right, what do we got next month? All right, let's start preparing campaigns for that. It just feels so dry and so corporate and so, you know, run-of-the-mill factory churning messages that I just don't believe any of these people. You know." To me, you want to do something really good with Hispanics Heritage Month and you want to celebrate with us, hire us. Hire us as directors. Hire us as producers. Hire us as, you know, you, this, uh, leads for your movie, for your television show. Allow us to write TV shows. Allow us to be in politics in the highest places like Joe Biden's doing. But we want that presidency too. Eventually we'll get it. You know, did you and I talk about equality versus equity? And the differences between that? Did you start seeing that like that meme go around with the kids? You know, oh yes, I've seen, I've seen that. Yes,
2: yes, yes. I've seen and I've seen the final meme.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's several versions, but if you don't know the equity, just Google it: equity versus equality, and you'll see these three kids in three different boxes trying to, you know, pop their heads to watch a baseball game, and it really talks about what equality is and what equity is. Equity would mean all of us are one percenters. As opposed to living in this country, making a living, we're a part of the system, and it's equal, but not equitable. For me, Hispanic Heritage Month is about making us equitable. And for African Americans, and for gays, and for, you know, women, and any group that has been marginalized by white supremacy in this country. So yes, Mike, I would love to see this damn month vanish. That way I can have January 1st to December 31st of Hispanic heritage every day.
2: Hispanic heritage or African-American heritage, or I think heritage every day, every month, that's never going to come from the culture. That's got to come from the home. You've got to be, you know, giving your kids and the people around you that kind of, you know, I feel like our relationship is suggestive. it would be a complete philosophical change in the way we have our society designed. It would be us more leaning towards the fantasy of what America is for us to be constantly embracing, you know, other cultures every day and celebrating the fact that there are so many here. We don't do that. But the other thing that you said, I think, is strong, too, or, or I'm curious about is just the, the notion of uh, a, a month. I mean, it was just like Black History Month. It was a week, and then it eventually turned into. It became a month, and and it was actually Ronald Reagan that turned it into a, a month for uh, Hispanic Heritage. But you touched upon, I thought, the idea that all year long there's a feast.
1: <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I immediately, dude, I heard the word feast, and I went straight to Game of Thrones. Man. <laughs> I have no
2: idea why, but that word association. Exactly, you picture like a giant turkey
1: leg. Yes,
2: that's a... exactly it.
1: <laughs> and then a swing of wine. Okay, <laughs> a feast, <laughs> so. gentlemen. It's something they just hunted, you know. <laughs>
2: Tonight we feast. So, so, so there's a feast going on all, all year long, right? And then at some point in the year, they're like, hey. They, they they those folks in the corner throw something over to them and that's kind of how it feels and so we have to be grateful like oh thank you
1: thank you for this Yeah we, oh, get the you, right. we get the leftovers right get the thank you master thank you thank master. you, thank you, thank you, thank you.
2: <laughs> but you know the the last thing is the cartoon I saw I've seen the cartoon of course many times but just this year actually just this past week I saw a new version or an updated version cuz the equality versus equity, the first image you see, it's, it's like you said, the three kids, you know, one kid can kind of see, one kid can't see because of the wall in the way, and one kid can see fine. And they're all standing on the same kind of box, same size box. So it's described as in the first image, assume that everyone will benefit from the same supports and that they're being treated equally. That's wrong. So then the second image is what you talked about, the equity, which is the second image, individuals are given different supports to make it possible for them to have equal access to the game, they're being treated equitably. But here's they added a third image, justice, where there is no wall. All of them can see the game without any support or any accommodation because the cause of inequity was addressed and the systemic barrier has been removed. And so what you're talking about, that shift I'll be honest, the more you read about things, the harder it is to believe that yeah, eventually everything's going to be wonderful and we'll all No, it's be-
1: not. As long as there's evil and good, and there's Darth Vaders and Luke Skywalker Jedi's, the world needs to coexist like that to be the world. Because if anything, you know, we've seen too many movies from, you know, these stories about, "Oh, we'd love to have a utopia." that then becomes a dystopia. Because I think the chase for utopia is nice, but it's not realistic. Power will turn into greed. And unfortunately, we can't control the darkness within everyone. And if you're religious, there's the devil and there's Inferno and there's Dante's version of it and what all that means to life and society, Mike. We're never going to reach a utopia, man. That's why I think we only created in science fiction movies because in reality there's a part of us that knows that that'll never happen. Has it ever happened since day one? Well, you know, the thing about
2: utopia, uh, it really comes down to what is utopia for a society? You say we've never really achieved utopia. I think if you're white, you know, there was a time in this country where, uh, let's just say it wasn't bad in this country when you were white in the post-war from the the late 40s into the 50s. If you were any other color, that's a whole other conversation. But I, I do think, you know, chasing utopia. What is utopia to most people? What do people worship now? This is not a country of spiritual people. The only thing that we here in this country worship is money. Because we are a capitalist society, money is what's worship. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. But hold on a
1: second. Is it really money? Because since the Great Resignation happened, no one's going to chase money, Mike, anymore. Everybody's like well-being first before money i Who's think we're everybody going a radical Who's everybody? dude the whole like service workforce of the united states of america there's 10 million jobs available and they can't fill them because four of these million unemployed people don't want to go back to service jobs getting paid shit And so, unemployment's over with, Alexandra Ocasio's trying to reinstate it and extend it all the way to February, and she can't get that bill through as of now, but people no longer want to work for crazy, like, little amounts of money. So we used to get paid $2.13 as a waiter and not give to hoots because we're depending on your tips. But if nobody's going to go over there, I'm going to be treated like shit by my boss. Delivery service workers that are mostly Hispanic, mostly Latino, they're unionizing. They're sick of it. Money, to me, no longer is the only reason you wake up in the morning. I think everybody's found out that they've been a part of a scheme, the biggest scan scheme in the history, which is essentially unconscious awareness that you're being developed to be a factory worker for U.S. corporations. And then you wake up at 70 and go, why did I work that hard and I'm still broke? What just happened? And that's why I think people are resigning from their jobs, saying maybe money isn't the only reason. Maybe it's enough money, just enough money to get by, but I can have my freedom because of that. And I think we're chasing that type of world now.
2: I won't say you're wrong. I will say I hope you're right. And I would love to see a union called the IDS, like you, you coined it there, the Immigrant
1: Delivery Service. Okay, I like that. Dude, that's actually great. Like, instead of FedEx. Oh, hold on, Mike, 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 Mike. Imagine, when you think about people bringing your food, you think about Hispanics, for the most part, in a bicycle, coming to you, delivering your food. So we've associated a subgroup of Latinos that were through the that came through the pandemic, through all these storms and Ida and Sandy Hook, they were doing the job that no one else would. Brother, if that was a delivery corporation, like a FedEx or a UPS, and you put a commercial of these guys delivering from point A to point B, wouldn't you invest stock? In a Hispanic delivery service that competes with FedEx and UPS. And they only hire immigrants. And they only hire immigrants. And it's the immigrant delivery service. It'll be the best one. Yes. And it's a pathway to becoming a citizen. Oh, okay. That's just the cherry on top. There it is. And and it becomes the biggest. And Amazon buys it. Yeah. Amazon buys IDS. (laughs) And it's all immigrants doing better jobs than anyone else in the United States. Each brown and black Great idea. Uh, culture
2: should take over some aspect of white culture and completely change it.
1: Yes, and I think that's starting to happen in Hollywood.
2: Well, you know, I, I think it is happening. I think it's happening without them even realizing it. You look at every area where they finally, quote-unquote, let us in, and we end up dominating, Whether whether it's music, whether it's baseball, whether it's football, whether it's uh, you, you, you name it. Name an area where we did not come in and start to dominate. What is it? What are the two top musics on the planet right now?
1: Yeah, well, reggaeton and hip hop. Exactly. Okay, on the planet, on the on the planet. And this brings me to the article. I'm not sure if you heard uh, about the article where blacks came on TikTok and blew that out. Same thing with Clubhouse. And now blacks are going, yo, we just made your shit hot. But you're treating us like crap, so we're going to get the hell out of here. It was an article that came out in the, in the LA Times. And it's interesting, Mike, because you just hit upon an, an interesting situation, okay? If you're saying that black people, colored people, when they go in, mostly black, when they go in into a platform that's just emerging, that's brand new, they make that shit hot. There's just two, there's a list, there's a never-ending list, an eternal list of how many times they've done this. But they always get screwed at the end. And we saw this happen with Clubhouse, and now it's happening with TikTok. And it happens on Instagram and on YouTube. It happens all over the place. And my question is, why, do, why does the African-American community, why do black people go on white platforms or Chinese platforms like ByteDance? make their shit hot and not create their own black owned social media. Like what's the most popular black owned social media app that, you know,
2: Uh, there isn't one, but I think that that will happen. I think it takes time. I think that one of the things that has happened over the last year and a half is, you know, there is a black version of Amazon. Now, you know, you can go, you can buy everything. Every product on this site is from a black.
1: Wait, What's the name of it? I didn't know that
2: it's called we buy black. And if you go there, it's set up a lot like Amazon, does all the same things. It looks like Amazon, except all the products they sell there are Black-owned, and it's a Black-owned, Black-run company. And, and you know, at the end of the day, you know, and I want to go back to, to Latinos in a minute on this, but at the end of the day, I think that's what has to happen. I mean, you know, we once we get entry into something that's been created, like Black people did not create you know, uh, record labels and music and radio. But can we dominate? Yes. Uh, you know, Latinos did not create baseball, but do they get in? Do they dominate? Yes. You know, so you could look at all these areas and and.
1: But they're all white created
2: products. Because that's the dominant culture,
1: and that's where all the resources are. So we're at the mercy of the white man creating a platform for us to excel at, but knowing, and I think that this is the expectation, we have to know that we're not going to be owning that or be the CEO of that. We could be stars of that, but at their expense.
2: But you see, that's the future. The future is that we will start taking control. I have full faith that there will emerge all those things. I mean, if frickin' Trump supporters can create their own platform, Black and Latinos can create their own platform. It's a, it's a good question. It's a good, I think that that's what's got to happen. I think the same thing with everything. If there was a choice, if there was a choice when TikTok came out, I think people might have gone to that other choice, but there wasn't. You know, and here's the other thing. You know, this is part of the conversation I was having on that TV show. Again, not to bring up Melvin again, but he he took this... When he made Sweet Sweet Back's Badass Song, it was rated X. So he didn't use that as, as a disadvantage. He then changed it saying rated X by an all-white jury. Nice. And by saying that... Exactly. By saying the genius of that is it calls into question rated by who? On what kind of system? What is this rating based on? So what does it mean to have followers? How many followers... How many of them are what? But what kind of metrics? It's a stupid show that they were gonna do the 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 what was it called? The activists.
1: Oh yeah. They scratched it and they're re- restarting it from scratch.
2: Right. Well they're gonna make it a documentary series. But again, how do we monetize something that uh is popular? And that's the culture we live in. That's commodification. Commodification of everything. We are very used to or we are very um accustomed to adapting you know we adapt oh okay this is popular let's get on there and we adapt we get in there and we do our thing but what happens is and what has happened and this part of this tiktok thing is you know part of that article was about a, a a young black man who who caught co- did cosplay and he loved batman so he dressed up as batman and people would start calling him monkey and then and and his response to it he'd end up getting banned on tiktok even though they were throwing hate at him and, and they're
1: all headed out to a new uh platform called fanbase which i had never heard of yes. and then another one called clapper and supposedly clapper even though there's a lot of african-americans heading out over there it now has a reputation among certain right-wing TikTok rejects to 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 inhabit those spaces. Yes. So I'm not sure if it's the best place. It's not. So this is why you need a black-owned TikTok, dude. And I feel like if you include the browns and the Asians and the Indians, I'm not saying that you can't exclude whites, but I'm saying if whites are going to create it and then create unfair systems for people of color... Uh, then we should just flip the script. But here's the thing,
2: and here, and if we really get into it, two things I think are, you have to keep in mind. One, whatever we create, if you say uh, all Latinos tonight, you know, or all black, we're having a black discussion, guaranteed this, and white folks are like, well, why can't I get in? Okay, that's one. <laughs> two, two, uh, two, okay. Everything that is created by this culture can ultimately be used as a tool of the the racist nature of their culture. There isn't an aspect of our culture. There isn't an aspect of media, social media, TV, radio, film, that cannot be used as a tool of, you know, racism and oppression. So that's the problem. ¶¶
1: I'm pretty pumped and excited for this interview with Riz Ahmed and Bassam Tariq. These two are some of the hottest talents in Hollywood right now. They also happen to be of Middle Eastern descent, uh, but American as well. And we had a really incredible conversation about identity. You know, we don't, I know the show, uh, the name of the show is Brown and Black, and it's really about Latinos and Blacks, but we've, been extending it now to the Asian community and also to the Muslim uh, Middle Eastern community that are also contributing tremendously to storytelling in the United States and in Hollywood. And so we're really having, dude, I would say, man, we're, we're hitting it out of the ballpark with the type of guests that we're having and the type of conversations that we're having. Because here, I had never truly understood what it's like to be a Muslim American, but it feels a lot like being a Latino American emigrating for the first time to the United States. And we got into that. We got into cultural appropriation of African American heritage that Muslim rappers are doing because it's touched upon in this movie called Mogul Mowgli. That is Bassam Tariq's second feature before he directs Marvel's blade. And Mike, I don't know, man, but that was one of the more profound, deep thinking conversations I think we've had in this uh, show.
2: Absolutely. And it was a, a profound and deep thinking film. You know, for me, uh, as both your friend and co host, part of the beauty of that film was just seeing how you were affected. We were talking earlier about cinema therapy, and I really enjoyed what you were able to bring out in them and what them being able to make this film w- allowed us. To talk about as a group you know we're all brown people basically I, even though i'm black i still consider myself brown because i i see brown when i hold my hand out but i i felt like it really underscores how connected we all are and how the more we understand each other the better we understand ourselves
1: we did a zoom call with riz and basam just so you guys know and that's what you will be listening to a zoom recording but we saw them on video. So we were talking to them. And unfortunately, we're not allowed to present that video. The publicist and we had already organized that, hey, we're not doing video, so you can't post the video. But even if we wanted to, one of the other reasons that even if we decided to do it, like leak it, all right, we can't now because Bassam, I believe.
2: Yes, because behind Basan were notes for
1: blade details of the blade movie that he was writing down spoilers you you think this is funny but i actually decided to zoom in did you yeah yeah Stop. so i took a i took a screen grab and i tried to sharpen it as much as i could and then i just zoomed in and zoomed in just to see what he had in it mike it, it you know, zoom pixelation sucks but the, the resolution of zoom sucks it's like at 720 but like low 720 i could not get Anything. Oh, it was all mumble jumble. Man. So even if I wanted to do oh, something, man. nothing. So th- 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 there goes that. Regardless, we have a great interview with Basam Tariq and Riz Ahmed for the movie Mogul Mogul.
3: We'll, we'll ask you where you're from. Now, where are you really from? The question seems simple, but the answer's kind of long. Britain's are and had a love a cup of tea in that. But where my jeans are from, people don't get see oh in come that. Come. Now, everybody, everywhere, want the country back. If you want me back to where I'm from, the property, need a No man's land here between trenches. Nothing grows there. But it's fertilized by the brown bodies that fall for Britain in the war. So when I spit, a puppy grows there. Oh. I find my own place business operation is to stop
1: trying to find a box for us well riz uh thank you so much for uh being here with uh, basam um my name is jack rico this is mike Sargent. we're brown and black the podcast and i think that this movie really is made <laughs> for conversation on the brown and black podcast absolutely we've interviewed everybody from george lopez Teresa Shaw, randall park we've we've taken e- essentially every person of color uh in hollywood that's working right now we've really broken down not pop culture but the identity behind pop culture and what makes pop culture tick from our perspective because we've seen pop culture in america seen from a white gaze only but not really from a person of color's gaze throughout history and I think that this movie much like this conversation I think is one where especially the subject matter of of this in particular which is about family and identity I know this is a Muslim life experience I know uh, Basim I know that you this is what you explore in your films and your writing I know Riz this is what you also explore uh, in your career and it resonates so much as a Latino as I feel invisible. I feel like my name, Jack, should be Juan. or And there was so much in the lyrics of your rap. There was so much in the family um, interaction, the self, the, 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 the hate for family, but the love for family. It, dude, it was overwhelming. It was a lot for me. And I think one of the first questions I wanted to ask, what does it mean for you guys to be Muslim today in
3: 2021? Man, it's a big question, and I'm definitely throwing that one
0: to Bassam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, you well, directed well, the
1: well, film. <laughs> well,
0: well, no, no, but, 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 I, but, but, but I did, yes, yes, I directed it, but every step of the way, I think Riz and I, you know. so I'm gonna say a few words and then I'll let Riz um, formulate his thoughts too. Um, first off, thank you, Jack and um, okay. Mike for, for taking the time out, and Jack for just the kind words that you just shared at the top. And, and something that I just wanted to say before, um, answering your question is that I, I'd say that the British Asian experience, like, I mean, look, I'm, I'm an American Muslim, right? Like Pakistani, whatever. Right. But I grew up in New York and Texas, but seeing the British Asian experience, um, I I feel like it really mirrors the Latinx kind of experience here in, in, in America. So, so I think a lot of those things that you were connecting to, it's, it's not just you. And I think, you know, I think it's, it's something that I felt as well, just being there. It's, it's, a lot of working class people, they're literally, uh, and, and Ruth can probably speak to that um, a little bit later on, but but to answer your question about what does it mean to be Muslim in 2021, I love that question because that's something that I've been circling a lot, you know, particularly with with the the, the 20th anniversary of 9/11. And I will say that for a, a while, I was really concerned about how other people saw me, right? particularly right after 9/ 11. Like a lot of my identity of being Muslim was very politically. Engaged and it was always from uh, a sense of of like I have a burden of representation. So I I always had like things ready to say about Islam, like talking points written out, like I was a political pundit or something. And um, but now I'm coming to understand it as an ethical framework. You know what I mean? Like that's that's how I'm trying to be Muslim now. It's like it's about, you know, what, what are what are like how how am I going to like live my life, you know, and, and maybe I can use being Muslim as as an ethical or a value-driven framework. And that's something that I choose. You know what I'm saying? Versus like um being racialized, which I think happened a lot for the past 20 years. But you have a choice to be Muslim. You know, I feel like I like it when people say that I'm an atheist. I'm I'm not a Muslim. You know what I mean? I like that I respect that because you know it's like I have a lot of white friends that are Muslim, right? Some of my teachers are are, are, are people that have embraced the, the you know, the ethical framework of being Muslim or whatever, right? Like, and and uh, and a lot of them are black, right? So it's like, what does that right. mean? Because I think so so many times that when we look at Muslim, we think of a South Asian or an Arab, we think of falafel, we think of Hamas, or we think of like- The stereotypes. The yeah, yeah. And I think that in a way, and I think sometimes when we racialize it, what we're doing is is we're taking out a large demographic of people that don't fit into that. You know what I mean? So in a way- there there is like a white Muslim experience. And that's kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. And it exists all around America, right? Like you have, um, you have of like, I mean, like over, what is it? Like over 40% of the Muslims in America, I think, are African American, right? Like so much yeah. of my understanding of being Muslim, it comes from the Black Muslim experience. Oh, and wow. um, and and so I don't know. So so it's an interesting thing because I think they and a lot of the Black Muslims are a bit more unapologetic about it, right? And they're also a bit more open and fluid with their experience of being Muslim because they've been in, in the country for a longer time than we are. So they know they're more integrated in a way and they know how to kind of, I don't want to use the word integrated. I feel like that's kind of like, that's that word's so charged, but 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 they know how to navigate society a lot better than I think first generation immigrants. So, so, so I've looked to them in a lot of ways to, to figure out how the hell to be Muslim in America. So um, anyway, that's, that's like a very long-winded answer, forgive me, but maybe Riz can add into that, because I'm, I'm curious to know his answer. Yeah,
1: Riz, uh, thoughts? I thought
3: it was beautifully, beautifully put, and just to kind of build off what you were saying, I mean, I think if you kind of think of two of the world's biggest global Muslim icons, you're thinking about Muhammad Ali, and you're talking about Malcolm X and you know we talk about my uncles and my grandparents and the people that they would look to talk about and stay up all night to watch or listen to on the radio or or, you know you're talking about those figures Um, and so yeah I think you know to what does it mean to be Muslim uh, in 2021 in this country or any country it doesn't mean one thing it means many 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 different things and one of the kind of strange things about being persecuted is that you're not just kind of limited by other people's perceptions of you but you start to internalize those limitations so you yourself start to limit yourself and your idea of what muslim is Mm. so example like after 9-11 you know i don't know a lot of people in my neighborhood and a lot of people in my community that became super religious like like hardcore religious after 9-11 and it's like if you say to people yo you're either with us or them you have to fit into this narrow box of salute the flag and invade the countries or this narrow box of grow your beard and, and and get, you know, super hardcore with the religion. Like, you give people these binary choices, they end up, you know, simplifying who they are in order to fit into these boxes, you know. And, and um, I remember a lot of people growing up in my neighborhood, like, you know, grew up as, you know, as DJs or MCs or whatever, suddenly overnight now music is haram. We're going to break our records, we're going to give it away. We're going to, they change their whole thing. And so, I guess, to, to build off what you're saying, Bassam, like, so much of our jobs over these last 20 years has been about uh, responding to other people's perception of us, right? Trying to push back against their simplified narratives about us, add some complexity, humanity, empathy to, to those narratives. And yet, what I hope being a Muslim means in 2021 and beyond, is addressing our own narratives about ourselves. I'm concerned less about what other people think of me now and trying to think more about how I see myself and trying to unpick some of the programming and the limitations within myself. And making this film Mogul with Basam was a huge part of that journey. I would turn to Bassam and go, dude, no one's gonna understand this film. Like, <laughs> who's gonna watch this film? Like, this is crazy. Like, it's, so, it's just so specific. We need to explain, and he'd be like, "Nah, man, like I'm not making it for them. I'm making it. We make it. Let's be honest, we're making this because we need to make this. This shit's therapy. This is just this is this is just cheaper than doing it. Therapy. Going and paying for therapy. (laughs) That's what this is. We're making this because we need to. And we made it for us. And we made it for Mm -hmm. us. We made it to unpick our own idea of like." how universal our experience could be. Like you said, it's so specific, but you know, all German white dudes in Berlin gave it the Critics' Prize at Berlin Film Festival. They're like, yeah, that's exactly like my, you know, my father, my family. And it's like, okay, wow, shit. So the more specific you go, the more universal you go, but that's, that's that seems obvious, except we've been taught not to believe that. So for, for me, what does it mean to be Muslim going forwards? That's something that um, I'm trying to address through my art what does it mean to be human i think is a similar question and 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 um, and i don't know i i i think that we can find um, a space outside of those simplistic binaries of us and them within our art I, you know a long time i thought where is home where is home now i think it's in the art it's in movies like this wow
2: all right well first of all we were going to start the show with post 9/11 blues just so you know and
0: uh but
2: but i have a couple questions uh first of all i relate to a lot i related to this film on a lot of levels and i really enjoyed uh that it is about so many things i think it's a really ambitious film you you tackle so many subjects but one of the things as, as a storyteller you don't really have a antagonist the antagonist is really the protagonist he's really in battle with himself, with his culture, as you say, this perception of himself. And uh, I thought that was very powerful. And every scene, uh, and and I'll admit, I'm I'm a writer, I'm a screenwriter, so I was blown away how every scene has conflict, every scene. And that's really what, and so a lot of times the conflict is memories, it's, it's culture, it's his past. But tell me a little bit about, for both of you, the challenge of writing a story like this, That is not only culturally specific, but you know, there's no bad guy. There's no villain. You know, so I have to say my hat's off because I was blown away.
1: How were you able to keep it so interesting? Yeah. Uh without that antagonist, without that Darth Vader, for us the viewers, to go, that's the guy. It's simple enough to to Mm. hate on him.
3: (laughs) I mean, but I really have to I really have to say, like Bastan writes like a beast. And, in a way that is so rare, and I think it's because, in a weird way, Bassam doesn't see himself as a writer, and you know in that it was one of those weird things where you kind of go like ah, I'm not going to be precious about it so like Bassam turn <laughs> around a new draft of a script in like a couple of days, and if you throw ideas at him, he'll be like, "No, no, yes, yes, no, yes," and roll and it's there's a fluidity and a momentum and a kind of aliveness to the way he writes all the way to on set where it was just like, hey, the scene ain't working. Yo, let's take five, Riz, come in. Let's get the laptop out. Brr. There's a new scene, everyone. We're going to do this scene now. Like there's there's something to it was so organic that I would almost say, yes, we did spend those hours looking at the whiteboard, looking at the walls, putting the cards up, right? How is every scene, you know, telling the, telling the bigger story. But a lot of this stuff, I kind of feel like it, it just happened kind of Organically, yes, there there was, you know, of course, there's structure and there's planning, but I feel like there was just an organic, alive momentum to the writing process that means that actually, I think when Basama and I watched the movie now, the movie's doing things that we probably hadn't even intentionally or explicitly kind of thought to do. You know what I mean? Like we weren't doing the movie, the movie was doing us. You know what I mean? And I think that there's something really interesting about that. People talk about that as this flow, you know, surrendering to a process, being in flow with a process. And I think, but Basam works like that, man. He works in a very flowy way. So um, I don't know, he might correct me and go, no, idiot. I totally planned <laughs> all of that. I just wasn't telling you about it. But I, for me, it felt so organic and free. Like that just feels right. That feels right. That's, that's what Zed would do. That's how, and you step back and it's like, huh shit, this thing, this thing
0: fits together,
3: you know? I don't know if, this has, if that feels fair, but some.
0: Yeah, no, I, th- I think you're being too kind. I think something that I would, that would just add to this, it's, it, it's, it's a, it is it's it's messy and it's chaotic. And I think we have to just admit that we don't know the answers. And I think it's being okay with things not being right. You know, I think that was something that, man, um, I, mean, I, I have to really give Riz this because things like coming from documentary, and I don't know if y'all feel this whenever you work with people that look like you, it's like, in a way you almost want to show off a little bit more, like, nah, nah, like, you know, because because like Riz understands the culture, he understands what I'm about and all that, but I can't ever go, well, you know, being a Muslim, blah, blah, blah. Like, I like, be like, nah, nah, nah I, I know what you're talking about. You're just, you know, you're just using, blah, blah, blah. you're hiding or whatever. So um, in that there was, there was uh, the ability, I mean, Riz gave me the ability to just be honest. And I think in that I was also really messy. So we would read pages together. I would write stuff. We would just literally read the page aloud, um, you know, I think that was very helpful, and and I think something just you know tension is something that I'm I'm always really curious about. And hats off also to our editor uh, Adam Biskupski that really helped us in that process. And also Yan, it's like it takes it takes a tribe to make a film. You know, it's not yeah. it's like raising a child. You need you need everybody there to help you in the process. And you have to shut up and listen sometimes. Not not sometimes. I think all the time because then the best idea wins. And people say, and it's true. That's that's what you have to do. You have to go with the best.
1: I wanted to talk to you, about, to you guys about family. In this movie, Riz, your character, Zed or Zahir, I'm not even sure what how he wants to name himself, but he's obviously going through major issues with his family, especially with his dad. He's faulting him for the autoimmune disease that he has, but he faults him in so many other ways. It seems like you love him, but you resent them all at the same time. And Bassam, I wanted to understand... How true is this in your own family? How much challenges do you have in just loving your family for the goodness of them without ignoring or with ignoring the, the, the dysfunctional aspects of what being in a family is? I don't even know. I don't have kids because I was so scarred from my upbringing that I didn't want to bring in a kid and be a fucked up father. How did you both guys tackle family? And after this experience, what is your thoughts on family today? This is, a, you know,
3: you know, I just really resonate with what you're saying, because in a way, this this film is a love letter to family and also a uh, but, but love letter is putting it simply. It's like kind of spilling your guts. Right. So much of this film is about that push and pull between you and where you're from and how, you know, you have this kind of scene in this movie in the movie where um, Zed as a child and then as an adult is kind of like having a wrestling match with his um, uh, religious school teacher, his Quran teacher, right? And in a way it's a metaphor for, I think, what a lot of the whole movie is, which is like this thing that's bigger than you, this thing that you're from is trying to give you a hug and you are fighting tooth and nail to make sure it doesn't suffocate you. And that's what that push and pull is between you and where you're from. We, we we grow from our roots. You know, it's it's where the pain and the poetry is, you know, to quote most def. And it's that it's the inspiration that allows us to do our work and make our way in the world. It's given us the resilience, the perspective, and the inspiration. And yet those roots are always also in danger of pulling you back into the mud, of pulling you back down underground, of burying you, of suffocating you. Of, and 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 I guess, so was, to me at heart, what this film is about is this Zed realizing that individualism is a lie. We're all part of a greater whole, like it or not. And guess what? There's some bits of that you will like and some bits you will not. You know, yes, you inherit the autoimmune condition. Yes, you inherit the dislocation and trauma of partition and what happened in South Asia a generation ago. But you also inherit the resilience of how those generations navigated all that fuckery, Like through art, through music, through qawali music, through stories and characters like Toba Tek Singh, you know so yes you inherit the gifts and you inherit the curses and that push and pull is really goes to the heart of what how I feel about family and really what this film is kind of exploring I think. Bassam?
0: The one thing that I'd only add to that is that like I've been privileged with the love of my parents right even if it's been a difficult love right it's an unconditional love and i feel like you know coming from working class family and all that like to 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 make films is hard but knowing that um i always had their love i was able to like make mistakes you know what i mean because i was like well at least i know that like i'll have like i'll have a cooked meal you know what i mean so in a way like i feel like that's a privilege that i i need to be aware of and and be grateful for so um yeah, I, I, th- that, that's all I kind of wanted to add to it, you know, because I think everything that Riz is saying is is, is true. Um,
2: well, I, I I have to ask you, I, I'm curious. There's so many things that that we're we're talking about here that I can relate to, uh, being black and and you know, not sure whether I should take it as a compliment when people tell, oh, you don't sound black, you know, and you know, and and and, and coming to realize as I got older that I often did things sort of to show like hey look i'm not like the others you know and and i didn't even know i was doing it when i was young so i'm curious what did you learn about yourself you're both of you in the process of making this film and now even going back and seeing it
0: okay uh man you guys are asking such great and heavy Why, questions I'm so deep man
3: <laughs> just whoa you know it's i love it i love it i love it i appreciate it man i mean but Sam, why don't why don't you why don't you jump off with what, yeah. you're, what you doing about yourself with this?
0: Yeah, I think something that I've I've learned, Mike, is that anytime I've tried to hide from who I am, I failed. I'm just not good at it. Like I've never been good at being a chameleon. I'm not good at poker face. You can't even ask Riz. Sometimes when we were filming, Riz was like, "Bro, you gotta just like move away because." you don't have a poker face and I'm looking over at you. So I was like, yeah, 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 you're right. So things I-
1: It's starting to affect me, man, come on. Yeah, no, it's
0: it's real, it's real. (laughs) Like I'm not, I don't know how to hide, right? Like in any time I've tried to like be anybody that I'm not, I've fucked up, right? I've completely fucked up. So even now as we're moving into Blade, it's like one thing that I don't wanna do with Blade is I cannot hide Blade being a black man. That has to be the center of what we're doing. And that's why I'm so honored to be working with such like incredibly talented Black creatives, right? We got Mahershala, we got Stacey osei So they're the ones that, that are really leading this. And, and for me, it's like, what, what, I'm, what I have to do is like, like, is just not hide. And that's what I also learned with Mogul Mowgli is like, I can't act like I, I have the answers, right? I have to, I have to be honest and admit that I don't know. Like, I'm not a British Asian. I'm not a rapper, right? Like this, this isn't stuff that I know as well, so I would have to go in and ask Riz, like, "Yo, Riz, so this doesn't make sense to me. How do I how do I navigate this?" And it's hard for me to do that, right? Because I'm supposed, to, I felt I'm supposed to have all the answers, you know. And, and realizing that it's okay to just ask and admit that you don't know, is is tough. But but that's what I, I've been learning um, throughout this process. I don't know, Riz, what about you?
3: I love that, man. I mean, in a way, I. I learned the same lesson from an opposite starting place, which is I have become very adept at becoming other people. That's how I earn my living. That's how I survived my upbringing. You know, like exactly what you're talking about, Mike, which is, you know, you learn or the world teaches you to wear masks, you know, in order to belong, in order to gain entry into different rooms and arenas. And so growing up, I was very much someone who was code switching my whole life working class Pakistani household scholarship to a white private school an hour and a half away from where, where, where I grew up cutting class to go hang out with my boys in their hybrid kind of British Asian rude boy culture and there's three different languages really there's three different costumes three different accents three different characters you're playing every day and I um, you know it, it it means that, okay, look, what do, what do you need me to play? You need me to play this role, I'll be that guy. It means that this role, I'll be that guy. Just the one thing I never get asked to be, and never have to risk being, is me. And what I realized is that, you know, I've I've often been driven by this idea of stretching culture. You know, you never have, you know, people that look like us in roles like this, or in rooms like this, or having their voice heard. But, and that's, that's, that's great. But there's different ways of doing that and up until now the way i've been doing it is like you know asking to enter their rooms you know and if that means i have to leave part of myself at the door then at least some of me is in that room you know what i mean Mm. like okay i'll code switch a little bit to enter the Mm. room because that maybe stretches culture a little bit but now after mogul the whole thing's flipped for me it's like actually i don't want to wear masks anymore as an actor or as a man i want to take masks off Actually, I'm not really trying to leave any of myself at the door to enter your room. I want to work out where home is. Where's my room? Where's my... So this is a homecoming and there's nothing harder than coming home. Mm. That's what the film film is basically dealing with. And what I find, the older I get is what you are dealing with as a human being, as an artist in your life, you better believe that the film that is dealing with that, the story that is dealing with that will find you. And force you to tell that story, so in the same way that Zed's learning, yeah he's out there performing and putting in a mask for other people's approval, but now nah, can you come home? can you get under the hood? can you really face who you are and where you're from that's that's where I'm at right now as an artist and mogo mowgli you know forced me to confront that so so now for me as as a man as an artist that I'm not trying to mold and wear masks I'm trying to take them off I'm not trying to you know sneak into their party I'm trying to Work
1: out what mine looks
2: like. That's a drop the mic moment
1: there, by the way. There was a scene where I believe you're just getting up from falling in the hospital, and when you wake up, you're in front of a black man that you're about Mm. to rap battle. Bro, man, what this black guy said to you was so piercing to me in particular, because those are moments that you don't say like that, especially that publicly, because it's damaging, man, you know? And essentially, he was talking about black appropriation. His father opened a Nigerian hair salon. What, what a hack. I guess he's not the only pucky trying to be black. <laughs> this is our art form, our heritage. You can't come and appropriate it, repackage, and sell it. Your dad should have been driving a bus or a taxi. Back in the day, my ancestors were in the back seat, But nowadays, I'm on the front line. He's You can watch it, Reggaetoneros, the mannerisms of black. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're an MC, Riz. A lot of that is black culture. Absolutely. And he called you out on it. Mm -hmm. He's like, you're robbing my heritage. For us, Mike being black, us having that black appropriation, is appropriation something that we should start looking, um, not as stealing from somebody, But maybe we should reframe appropriation as saying, listen, that's part of my culture. If you want it, like you were just talking about white Muslims. Um, Should appropriation be reframed today as in a sharing instead of a
3: stealing? Hassan, why why don't you talk about this a little bit? I've got some thoughts as well. But you you have some interesting thoughts about that scene. We spoke a lot about that scene and the importance of having that scene in the film. Yeah,
0: so um, a, a few things to... To to say that I think are quite important. Um, One is that the British in the British Asian experience something that I felt either either I felt Zed was going to be a boxer or a rapper, right? And the reason for that is because the way I saw from from my little like uh, time there that people have fought for equality was either in the ring of you know with your fists or with your words. Those were the only two ways I saw the British Asians surviving, right? Like that were those those were the places. So. Um, it just felt stronger for me to be to make him a rapper because that's also how I saw. It's it's just the language of the youth, but I think it's also important that because like we we actually even when I we went to Pakistan, Riz, you might remember this. Like even in Palestine, it's the language of resistance. It's the it's the way people communicate. It's now it's hip hop, it's rap, and it's all around the world. And I remember I was sitting with one of my friends. I was like, what, what, "How does that like? How do we navigate this? What does this mean?" He goes. Well well what what else would they do? What else would they what what, what what would they be doing? This is what they would be doing. I was like, wow, and um i I felt it was an important thing to to bring up. The thing is I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if it's is it do we do we reframe it as sharing or or not or as not as stealing? I don't know the answer to that question to 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 be honest. I don't know well
3: well yeah, I mean yes there perhaps is like a greater proximity between the black and brown experiences in the uk than there is in the us which with a similar kind of history of post colonial immigration but they're not the same experience there is it, you know white supremacy has a very clear hierarchy and you know the shit flows downhill and it's very <laughs> clear you know who who is going to be holding the you know holding the bearing the brunt of that um so there is a different experience and and yes, I think that when we went to Pakistan, the kids in the shanty towns there, you know, uh, yeah, rap is their self-expression, is their, you know, it, what, the, what, what this specifically African-American art form has done is provided a, it's a gift to the world and it's provided a blueprint for self-expression, a blueprint for dignity through self-expression. You know, um, the dignity that comes with self-expression and also the like betterment of your circumstances that can come from when when that meets an audience, you know, and sets the world on fire the way it has. Yeah, this is a black art form, no question. Um, And yet to say that we, we reframe it as sharing feels to me too easy because it's like, well, what are you sharing back? You know what I mean? Like, how can it not just be extractive like if you're going to engage in that art form, what are you contributing from your own culture or art form experience? How are you using your position to amplify and uplift other artists who, don't, who aren't afforded the same privilege that you are as someone who isn't black? These are things I think we have to think about, you know, and that 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 can be something you do explicitly with your platform or in your day-to-day life or in terms of just contributing, you know, elements of your culture. Something has become increasingly important to me is to like, intertwine you know that you know jamaican sound system culture which basically is the bedrock of all street music in the uk you know hip-hop from the us and also my heritage my culture qawali music qawali is is spoken word a kind of rap you know a kind of speeded up syncopated spoken word and also singing all those three things and i'm thinking more and more about okay how can what i'm doing be more um you know, borrow more from the DNA and contribute more from the DNA of that part of the world, um, rather than just it being one way traffic of extracting from from this black art form. And that's that's part of the journey the Zed's on mm-hmm. as well. One of the masks he wears is that is to kind of purely kind of see himself within that lineage of 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 this black art form. And again, I'm not saying that you can't do that. You can just be aware that it's not just you know a, a one way relationship, but over the course of the film, he goes on a journey that I've been going on over the last few years as well. You know, and I hope that's reflected in the music I put out with The Long Goodbye or Sweatshop Boys and all that stuff. Is like, no, I need, to, I need to bring some of my own DNA mm-hmm. to this as well. You know, I need to bring some of my own blood. Otherwise, I'm just a vampire. You know? Um, so I think, I think it is it's complex and it's a rich subject matter. But I think a really healthy starting point is saying, yeah, absolutely. This is a, this is a black art form. And this is something that you know, belongs to black people, you know, Um, it's, it's, it's morphed and evolved, but um, you know, paying those dues I think is essential.
2: Well, you know, there, there are a few things that that you're saying there and, and again, as African-American and cultural appropriatism is a topic we could go on about, but what's interesting in that scene that Jack's pointing out is that uh i agree with everything you said riz about you know there has to be something coming back but the question is it's there's 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 sort of this mutual resentment i think that and i think it comes from being oppressed where you 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 you're you're looked down upon for what you do or what you represent yet people you know people look down on you know black people uh African Americans yet their music their culture their cool their style everybody takes something of it and I, and I felt the same thing with uh you know Pakistani Indian you know there, there's so many aspects of the culture there's nobody that doesn't you know like Indian food you know but you know there's nobody that doesn't like certain things that they can digest about a culture but there's sort of this resentment and you know you also touched upon family so i'm curious um in this film because there are so many things you wanted to cover uh how did you you, you know you mentioned uh, Bassem that he had to be a boxer or a rapper you know how did you boil down to the things that you do cover because you cover so much and uh, i'll be honest I, I was even i don't want to give away too much but there's a scene in the film in my opinion, it shouldn't work, (laughs) but it does. (laughs) And you do that a bunch of times where like, why, why does this scene work work? So I'm, I'm, you know, he's hugging his dad in the bathroom and I'm crying. So (laughs) it's like, why am I not thinking about anything else? But what's, because I knew it was in the head of all the characters. So I'm just curious, you know, how did you narrow down what you wanted to talk about? And, you know, without praising you too much, how did you get to do it so well?
0: Honestly, when when you when you're blessed with such talented actors, it makes it really easy, right? So I think actors are really the gatekeepers of the truth. They're the ones that'll tell you if this stuff works or not. So I think right away, if something wasn't landing, we had to change it. And um, there was actually a lot that we left in in the edit that that didn't work. And I think you know um, th- there is this feeling sometimes that. See, yeah, I mean, I'm sorry, Mike. I'm just trying to think through how to answer this because it's it's such a messy process. Like, you know, and, and and we were just blessed with really good, I think, storytellers to help us along the way, right? Like, we had great execs. We had Eva Yates, who was great with story. We had Yan Demange, who's an incredible filmmaker who's working right now with Riz on a film. And he was our exec, but he was sat with us. And he was like, this thing isn't working. You need to take this out because it's fucking confusing. Do this, do that. And he was right. Like, I think, so, so I think it was, it was a group. It was, it was people coming in to help us and us taking the advice where, where we wanted to in other parts where I would sometimes be like, no, I, I really think that's important. Like, there's that, there's that scene, the scene that shouldn't work in the film that I, I feel is quite important is like the scene with the guy in the mosque, like what's at the alleyway. And, and you know, and yes. the whole split. Yeah, like, it's like, it's so ridiculous because you basically have a random guy that's going to incite an incident, basically, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that, that's what it is. It's like, I'm like, this is dumb. Like, why did I even write this, right? Like, so for, for a while, we took it out of the edit because we're like, we'll find another way of getting him in where Riz is actively getting us through there. And it's not just some random man enters the room and now this is blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh, that's so convenient. But it just felt like such a thing that, well, you know what, We're this is just that film. So we're just going to do that. And we're gonna break some of those rules, and um, you know, and, it, and it's tough because you know I, I don't know if it if it works, but 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 I hope it does, and um, and 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 that's the kind of stuff that I think we we wanted to try because I think that's that's another thing, man. It's like. Like, if if I cared to make a perfect film, I'd never make a film, you know? So- (laughs) That's
1: true. You know, really, I wouldn't.
0: So then I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna keep just trying. And that's what I learned from Riz. Riz was always someone that's like, look, I always, he said this to me earlier on. He goes, look, I always swing, right? Like, no matter what, I'm gonna swing. And I saw him, like, even when we went to Pakistan and, and I would make him do these, like, I remember once we went to this, like, random market in Karachi and I was like, okay, you're just gonna, like, change clothes and you're gonna sing. And he was like, all right, and he'd do it. And it was crazy, it was ridiculous, but he would do it and he didn't bat, like he didn't bat out, he's like, I'm just gonna do it. And he was there and I was like, man, that's amazing. And, no and I wouldn't film it correctly. Yeah, there was no fear. And and that's what it's about, it's being iterative, it's trying and seeing him try and him take those risks. I was like, fuck it, I need to be, I need to be up in my game and taking just as many risks as he is, you know?
1: Basam Riz, thank you so much, man. Thanks for being on the Brown and thank Black you. Podcast. Thank you, guys.
0: Really quick, so this is not going to be video, right? It's just audio?
1: No, That's okay, just audio. Perfect, because no, okay, I've got my back,
0: uh, I, I didn't erase the background, so please. All right, all right, okay. What
3: happens at the end of Blade? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. (laughs)
2: That's right. We'll we'll zoom
0: in and put up a meme. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right, guys. Thank you, you, Jack. That was very kind of you, Jack and Mike. Thank you, guys.
1: That's it for this fifty seventh episode of Brown and Black. We'd like to thank Bassam Tariq and Riz Ahmed for being on the show. And if you would like to support this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. Your help will allow us to be heard by many more people. This episode was edited by Joshua Torado. Now, Mike, I just wanted to let everybody else know that the rest of the October month and the rest of this September month, we're going to be celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month. So the next four episodes, we're going to be rebroadcasting some of our best interviews that we've done. And we're beginning September 24th with Eric Velasquez. Then we're following it up with guests like Carlos Lopez Estrada, the director, uh, John Legazamo, George Lopez on the 15th. So that's going to be... Hopefully really good. Well, with that said, see you on the next episode of Brown and Black.